Today, we are going to talk about the central character, if you will, for everything we do. We are talking about Jesus today. We're talking about Jesus, and these questions really, was he really God? Was he really God? Did he really rise from the dead? And his, he, is he really the only way to salvation? These are all claims that Jesus made, that he was God and that he is the only way to salvation. Um, I wanted to highlight just a couple of books. I mentioned that I've been reading a few books in preparation for this series. Um, one is, and I'll put these online so if you don't get them right now, one is called The Problem of God by a guy named Mark Clark. He's Canadian, so I had to read it. Um, I'm Canadian, in case you didn't know why I just said that. Um, Mark Clark, it's a funny name to say, Mark Clark, The Problem of God, and it's a skeptics, Answering Skeptics' Challenges to Christianity. That's a great book. That was kind of the main one that I read. Um, I wanted to highlight another book that Christy found on Amazon. It's by an author and speaker named Louis Giglio. Um, it is a book for kids. It's called Indescribable, 100 Devotions About God and Science for Your Kids. And I've looked through it. It just looks awesome. Little devotional thoughts, scripture verses, and then just cool things about creation, nature, our universe. So I can uh, get you more information on that. It's called Indescribable by Louis Giglio. And then finally, and I want to start with this, I also read a couple of books or parts of a couple of books that were more skeptically written, okay? They were written by the skeptics. We're talking about those who have belief and then those who are skeptics. Well, I read a couple of books by the skeptics, and that was interesting. And this one, I'm going to read a quote as we start, um, is called 50 Simple Questions for Every Christian. I got it at the library because I saw the title and I thought, oh, well, that's a good Christian book on answering questions about our faith. And the very first line of the book of the intro was this, this is not an attack on Christian people, period. And I thought, oh, maybe that's different, you know, unless they meant it seriously. But I sensed a little bit more like, okay, this isn't going to be from the viewpoint that I have. But it was a fascinating read, all these different topics. And as we get started today, talking about Jesus, um, he starts this book with just this chapter called, Does Christianity Make Sense? Does it make sense? And he lays out all the reasons why he can't believe anything we say about Christianity. And I thought it was very interesting. It was funny how you can always tell how emotional we are about our beliefs because I, I found myself reading some of these things, like getting you know, kind of agitated. I'm like, how, how dare you, Guy Harrison? That's his name. Um, and, but then I realized, no, he is, he's a very smart guy, very well thought out, and presenting a lot of questions that a lot of people have. And so as we start this sermon today on Jesus, I wanted to read a quote from the first chapter of this book. This is how he kind of lays out his claim for why Christianity makes no sense at all. And he's talking about God here. He's talking about God and his plan for salvation. And we've got a quote that's going to be up on the screen. Can we put that up there? The quote says this, talking about God. How could he not foresee that there would be doubts and mass rejection of an unproven story about God sending himself to earth so that he could be killed horribly for us before returning to heaven to be with himself? And that this human sacrifice was necessary because we are all guilty of a crime we did not commit. Adam tasted the forbidden fruit, remember, not I and not you. Furthermore, where is the proof that the important events of Jesus' life really happened 2,000 years ago. 
How can we trust the account of his death and what it means for us? And how can we be sure that the death of Jesus was not entirely a human event with no supernatural component to it? These are the obstacles that keep many non-believers from becoming believers. I read that, and that was such a well-thought-out statement as to why people hear about our claims of Christianity, hear about our claims of faith, what we believe about the Bible, and they just can't get on board. It just does not make sense. They need, and I've talked every week about this, there are believers and there are skeptics. Believers, they'll believe if you tell them something, and all they need is, well, the Bible told me so, or that's what I learned in Sunday school, and that's enough for me. But many of us, and maybe you're here today as a skeptic, you say, I need more than that. The writer of this book says, where is the proof that all of these things happened? I'm going to need more than that. So, we are today talking about Jesus. Jesus. Is he the only way to God? Did he die? Did he rise again? Was he God? Or was he just another man that lived that taught a few lessons and then died. In John 14, verse 6, this is when Jesus makes this claim about being the only way to God. It's, and you would be familiar with this verse. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the claim that Jesus made when he was alive with his disciples. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Now, this was a radical claim in that day and age. It's a radical claim today. Jesus claimed to be God, and then he died to be the sacrifice for our sin, and then he rose again as in, and is in heaven now until he comes back again someday. And for the believer, if you're a believer, this is what we believe. This is what we profess. This is what our faith is. But for the skeptic, all of those things just sound a little too, you know, mythical Lord of the Rings, right? A little bit too, that has to be made up because not all those things happen. The, the prophesied one that would come, it sounds like Return of the Jedi. It sounds, you know, all those things, it just sounds made up. And that claim that Jesus made also is one of the biggest objections that people have towards Christianity today. That they would say, how can you say that your way is the only way. How does that not sound arrogant or intolerant, right? We hear that a lot in our world today, especially in our world today when anything that claims to be absolute truth, anything that claims to be absolute truth is discarded and questioned. In our world, people who are seeking for truth, what do they want? They want to find their own way. If you go into a bookstore, the biggest section on books is self-help. We want to help ourselves. We want to find our own way. We want inclusion and validation for everyone's beliefs. And the belief is this, that there are many ways to God. There are many roads to heaven. There's no absolute truth about God, but everyone kind of finds their own way to truth. Have you, and maybe, you've, maybe you would say that today, but have you ever heard someone say that? I've had conversations with people where faith comes up, and inevitably somebody in the group is going to say something like that. Well, I just think that everyone's going to find their own way. I think that there's more than one way to God, that we all just have to be true to ourselves and find our own way to salvation. And that sounds good. And, and I think it sounds good to the people. They're like, yeah, we don't want to exclude anybody. 
we don't want to be intolerant of anybody. But that idea, whether or not it's Christianity or not, that idea doesn't really make a lot of sense when you think about it, that all roads lead to heaven. Because all religions, whether or not you're Christian, Muslim, whatever you are, all religions are exclusive in some way. All religions would say, we know how to get to God, and this is how we do it. If you put a Muslim and a Christian in a room together, they're going to disagree on a lot of things. But you know what? One thing they're going to agree on is this. They're both not right. They both can't be right. They're not going to say, oh, we're both right. No, because both are exclusive in their claim that there is one way to God, and they know what that is. So if you're in a classroom and you get a test back that you got all the answers wrong, the teacher's not going to say, you know what? What's right for you is good enough for me, right? We have, in our house, um, she's not in here this morning. I asked if I could tell this story. Betty is now 13. It's Betty's birthday today. She's 13. I think she's helping out in kids' church today. We had, um, in, in the second grade, so a few years ago for Betty, they would do those math tests where they were time tests. So it was arithmetic questions, and there was a 100 of them on a page, and you had to go through and get as many right as you could. So the goal was to get really quick at your math facts. So Betty was doing great at getting the answers right, but she wasn't really moving quick enough for the teachers. And so she'd bring home another time test and she'd maybe have half of them done. And you had a certain amount of time to get as many of them done as you could. And so the teachers would always tell her, you got it. These are great, but you got to go faster. You got to go faster. And time after time they'd say, this is good, but you got to get faster. You got to get faster. And so Betty because she's my child, one day she said this. I mean, in her head, I imagine this was what was going on in her head. You want fast? I'll give you fast. So she got the time test, and she wrote down the number 11 on every single question. She just boom, 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 and done. And handed it in, done. I got all 100 questions done. But she got like 95 of them wrong because there was, you know, at no point was the teacher saying, you know, Betty, your search for mathematical truth is your journey. And so we won't question that at all. No, there's nobody that's going to say um, all answers are right. No, sometimes, have you ever been in an environment where someone is saying, you know, we're going to just share our answers and our ideas, and there are no wrong ideas, and there are no bad ideas. Whenever I'm in that environment, I always want to say, yes, there is. Yes, there is bad ideas. Yes, there are wrong answers. And I, that, that idea that, that Sammy said over there, that was a terrible idea. That's a bad idea. But we look at faith from that mentality of, in our world today, we look at that in the mentality of everybody's truth, everybody's journey is theirs to take. And this creates a difficulty for believers who believe that this is the truth in a world that says, don't tell me what truth is. Don't tell me that anybody has truth. Today I want to address this, talking about Jesus. Is he the only way to God? Is he the only way to God? Did he die for our sins? Did he rise again? And is he the only way to salvation? The skeptics would say that is ridiculous. So how do we answer that claim of Jesus that he is the only way to salvation in a world of skeptics, in a world who need more than a Bible verse to prove them as evidence? So first, I'm going to go, just go through a couple of things here. First, the skeptics would ask why. Why? And you even heard it in that quote I read from that book. Why did it even need to happen? Why did it even need to happen? Jesus came. Why the need for death, sin, and hell, and forgiveness? Why any of that? For what? 
What possible sin could we commit that would result in eternal punishment? Like, God must be this tyrannical ruler that they, I, I read further on in this book. He said that idea of eternal punishment for sin, it's like throwing somebody in jail for 20 years for stealing a can of pop from the quick trip. You know, it's, it's like overkill on the punishment. Why would we believe that that needs to happen? You even heard him say it. Adam was the one who ate the apple. It wasn't even me or you. Why is there this eternal consequence for sin? Why do we need to be saved from everything, from anything? And real quick, I just want to highlight this, and this is what the Word says. God is loving and merciful, and we believe that, right? We believe that God is loving and merciful, but He is also holy and righteous and just, And so when we think in terms of crime and punishment from a human perspective, we miss out on a whole other deal that he is not, this isn't like stealing some money from a coworker. This is sin and rebellion in front of a perfect, holy, righteous God. And sin in front of God who is perfect and righteous, the only consequence, the only penalty is death. And so in the Old Testament, you read there was animal sacrifices that would pay for the price of people's sin. But this is our sin. This is rebellion. God wants a relationship with you and me, and sin is rebellion, and it causes separation, and a penalty must be paid. But that penalty was paid by Jesus Christ. I'm going to read a couple verses. One is from Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says this on the screen. It'll be up there. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Peter 1 verse 3 says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's all about what those verses say, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why we needed to be saved, because we are sinners in front of a holy God. And the penalty was paid by Jesus dying on the cross for us. If you grew up in church, this is all the story we've heard a hundred times. This is the foundation of our faith. So if there's anything that we should have confidence in, it's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, because that really hinges everything. If that didn't happen, then we have no reason for faith. So that's why, if a skeptic asks, why did it even need to happen? Well, that's why it needed to happen. But skeptics more than that, and here's what we really want to look into today in the few minutes we have left. Skeptics wonder more than why. Maybe you've actually talked to someone like this. Maybe you're here today and you have this belief. Did it really happen? Okay, did it really happen? The death and resurrection of Jesus, and that's what I want to look at for the few minutes we have left. Is it true? It's so important to our faith that it is true, but is it true? If it's true, then we believe all the things that Jesus said. And I've mentioned this before, and it's not original to me. I've heard other preachers say it. But if you are a man who predicts your own death and resurrection, and then you pull it off, well, then I'm going to listen to everything you have to say. Okay? Jesus predicted his death, predicted his resurrection, and then did it. So if you can pull that off, I'm going to listen to everything you have to say. Um, That's why we can, if it is true, the events of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that's why we can believe with confidence all the things that Jesus says. But if it's not true, then the whole thing falls apart. If the tomb is not empty and Jesus is still in there, well, then we have no reason for faith. We have no reason to be here today. We might as well be at home getting ready for kickoff Vikings Packers, right? 
Spoiler alert, what's going to happen is Vikings will keep it close, and then Aaron Rodgers is going to get a phantom pass interference call that's going to give him the game. You don't, don't even need to worry about it. I just gave you the game right there. Um, if Jesus is still in the tomb, then we have no reason for faith. Um, there's good historical record that Jesus died, not just in the Bible, but other historical writings. We've talked about that in the last couple of weeks. Historically, people write that there was a man named Jesus and that he was killed, that he was crucified by the Romans. So it's not really, you know, it's not hard to prove, to have evidence that points to the fact that Jesus died. But did he rise? There's this claim of an empty tomb. It's why we're all here. But the skeptics say there has to be another answer for that. There has to be another answer for that. There have been some theories, and obviously people would be skeptical about an empty tomb. If you see someone die, and then they put them in a grave, in our world, it's easy to be skeptical that they would rise from the dead because dead people tend to what? They tend to stay dead. And so there's this empty tomb. There's this claim that Jesus has risen, and now there has to be answers. Believers say, well, he rose. The skeptics would say, well, there's got to be some other explanation. And there's a few theories that they point to. If you talk to a believer or a skeptic who would say it never really happened, and you ask them, what about the empty tomb? They would say a couple of things. They would say, first, well, Jesus wasn't really dead. And I talked about this a few weeks ago. Jesus wasn't really dead, and I used the line from the movie, he's only mostly dead, if you've ever seen The Princess Bride. He's only mostly dead. That was one of their claims, that somehow Jesus was on the cross, he was beaten, and it looked like he was dead, but he was only mostly dead. And then in the tomb, somehow he regained strength to push the stone away and to get past those Roman officers and all that. That's one claim. It's not, it's not a very valid claim. That one seems pretty far-fetched. Another claim is this, that the, the women on Easter Sunday, they went to the tomb and they found the tomb empty, but those women went to the wrong tomb. That's what one claim is, that they just went to the wrong tomb, which obviously is not hard to prove in that day and age, because if there were some ladies at the tomb saying, he's risen, he's risen, and you had Jesus in the tomb over here, you would have said, no, over here. He's right here, sorry. You were at the wrong place. So that one obviously is not a very valid claim. The main one, the main theory that people have about why there's an empty tomb is this. Maybe you've heard this, that somebody stole the body that the disciples decided we've got to get rid of that body so that we can say he rose from the dead so that we can have a whole Christian movement. So let's focus on that one for a little bit. Let's look at those events. On Friday, Good Friday, Jesus died and the Christian movement was over. There were no followers of Jesus after he died. All the disciples thought, it's over. He died. We didn't see that coming, and they scattered. Many of them were hiding because they feared that they were next. If nothing else happened after Friday, after Good Friday, there would be no Christianity. It was over on Friday. It was done. Nobody was thinking, oh, we're going to start this movement. It was over. But then, allegedly, Jesus appeared on Sunday morning, first to those women at the tomb, and then to the disciples, and then to over 500 other people, and the movement began to spread, and that movement lasts today. That's why we are here. That Christian Jesus-following movement, it started on that Sunday morning, and it lasts today. So just from that, I find that to be convincing evidence that this story is not made up. It has to be real, and let me explain. First, if the disciples made it all up, if the disciples said we need to steal the body, hide it somewhere, 
make up a story that Jesus rose from the dead and write all this down and create this document that will start this movement, they would have needed to write a better story for anyone to believe it. They would have needed to write a better story. First of all, if you're a disciple writing this, you would have never written down all the bad things the disciples did. You know, the disciples, if you read through the New Testament and the Gospels, they're always messing up. They're the ones who are doubting. They're the ones who are questioning. They're the ones who say, Jesus, there's somebody over there ministering. Should we call down fire from heaven and destroy him? You know, it's these disciples that just never quite grasped what Jesus was trying to teach. If the disciples made it up, why would they put that in there? If I'm making up a story about me, I'm putting in all the good stuff, right? We call that Facebook and Instagram today. I'm putting down the best stuff. I'm not putting down the selfie that shows my bald spot and the bags under my eyes. I'm like getting the right angle and not here, you know, the perfect angle. That's how we think. There was too much negative content in this story for it to be something that the disciples made up, unless it was true and they just said, you know what, we got to write it down. Another thing which would discredit this story if it was made up, in that day and age, you would never have the claim that the women were the first ones to see the body, see the empty tomb. You would never make the key eyewitnesses women. No offense, but in that day and age, women's testimony was not viewed as valid. That was just the culture they lived in. A woman would not be allowed to testify in a court because their testimony was not valid. Okay? So you would never make the key witnesses two ladies that showed up at the tomb on that Sunday morning. Another thing. And I mentioned this last week. All of this New Testament was written within 30 years of that day when Jesus rose from the dead. So all the eyewitnesses are still alive. So if you're going to write something down and say, because the claim in the New Testament is Jesus first appeared to the women and then to the disciples and then over the next few weeks to 500 or more other people. So all these eyewitnesses that saw Jesus, all these eyewitnesses that are named in the New Testament that say, you saw him and talked to him, he saw him and they were still alive. So if you're going to name people, if you're going to say there's eyewitnesses, you got to wait until all the eyewitnesses are gone so you can make up whatever you want, right? I illustrated that last week by saying if I wanted to write a history about Homestead Community Church saying it was the greatest church ever and by year two we were 30,000 people and I was widely regarded as the greatest pastor who ever lived, I would have to wait until all of you were gone because any one of you could say, yeah, never saw it, or yeah, I was there, that never happened, I never thought that one time, okay? The eyewitnesses were still alive. And finally, what explains the change in these cowardly disciples? Friday, after the crucifixion, they run and they hide, and the movement is over. None of them were bold and filled with faith in that moment. Peter had just denied even knowing Jesus, and he was in hiding. There was nothing courageous about those disciples. But then something happened, and somehow those cowardly disciples got enough courage to make up a story, naming eyewitnesses who were still alive, and then go on to preach boldly in spite of persecution, and then eventually give their lives in some gruesome, awful ways. Those disciples, would that have happened if it was all made up? If it was all made up, how do you account for the change in those disciples who were hiding and cowardly and fearful for their own life to just a few days later boldly proclaiming the truth that Jesus has risen and then be willing to give their lives for it? I don't believe that they would be willing to give their lives for something that was made up. 
And finally, one final example is James, the brother of Jesus. I love the story of James. Jesus had brothers. One of them was James. Now, in uh, John 7, verse 5, I think this will be up on the screen. It's just a quick verse. It says this, for even his own brothers did not believe him. That was just a quick, you know, Jesus is ministering, doing all these, all these miracles, and it says that even his own family, even his own brothers didn't believe him, which I find kind of understandable because I have a brother. If you have a brother, you might find this understandable. If your brother decides when he turns about 30, hey, I'm the Son of God. I'm the Messiah. I am God Himself. I am the way to heaven. I am salvation. I'm the author of your faith. You're going to say, whatever. I grew up with you. There's no way that you're God. But then here's a couple of verses. One of them is found in Acts. Here's what happens later on. And we read this in Acts 1 verse 14. It says this. This is after the resurrection. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So now, all of a sudden, after the crucifixion and after the alleged resurrection, now all of his brothers are in. So something happened. Something that happened that caused him, caused James, the brother of Jesus, to get on board. And finally, James wrote a book of the New Testament. And the very first verse of the, of the book of James says this, James This is how they would start this official letter. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. That's how he starts this letter. So James, who just a few months before would have said, I don't believe you are anything other than my brother, now is starting a letter by saying, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. People would read that and be like, that's your brother you're talking about. Something happened to James that caused him to change. What changed? Later on, James would be another one who would die for his faith. He gave his life for this movement, this Christianity movement, this Jesus movement. What changed in him? After refusing to believe earlier, now he is giving his life as a servant of Jesus. The only explanation that makes sense is that he saw something. He saw a resurrected, risen Jesus. The life change amongst those disciples and early followers makes me believe that it wasn't made up. It wasn't made up, but that these people all saw risen Jesus. So what about us today? What do we do with Jesus? He sincerely believed that he was God, and he claimed to be the only way of salvation. So there's two options. Either it's true or it's not true. Either it's true and that Jesus was right, and if it's not true, then Jesus was a liar. And actually more than that, because if you are a man who sincerely believes that you are God and sincerely believes that you are the way to heaven and it's not true, you're not just a liar you're kind of crazy, right? You're kind of a crazy person. If you, be- if you met someone who believed they were God and then you found out, oh, they weren't, you're going to think, yeah, it's- they're kind of crazy. They might be a little off, right? Right? So really the only options that we have with Jesus is it's true and all the things he says are true or he was a lunatic, right? I mean, it sounds weird to say it, but it- it's the- really the only two options. Either it's true or he was a liar. But either way, And you might be here saying, I believe it's true, and you might be here saying it's all made up. But either way, the argument that I believe Jesus was a nice man, a good teacher, 
had some good wisdom to share, but he was just a man. That doesn't really apply to either. Because if it's not true, and he was a liar and a little bit crazy pants, you know, like a little bit like off because he thought he was God, you would never look at that and say, yeah, but he was a good teacher, said a lot of valuable things. No, he was, he was crazy. He was delusional. You would never say, oh, he's just a good man. And if it is true, and he did rise from the dead, you would never reduce it down to, oh, he's a good teacher, right? It's so much more than that. If it's true, you would never say, oh, I take some of his beliefs, and he was a good man and a good prophet. No. If he rose from the dead, then everything he said was true. He's not just a teacher. He is the Son of God, the Messiah, the only way to heaven. So whatever, you, the, whatever belief you have, the one that doesn't make any sense to me is, ah, oh, we believe, kind of the middle ground. We believe Jesus was nice, a good man, and one of many ways to heaven. That's the one that really doesn't make any sense when you think about it. I believe that the resurrection happened. I believe that Jesus is alive. It's the only plausible explanation why this Jesus movement got out of the first century. It's the only plausible reason. It's the only reason that those disciples turned and gave their lives for this movement. And with that, with the idea, with this truth that Jesus rose from the dead, then I believe everything Jesus said. Like I said, if you can rise, predict your death and resurrection, and then pull it off, I'm going to listen to everything you say. Why do I believe that the Scripture is true and can be trusted? Because Jesus said it was so. Jesus said it was truth. Why do I believe that Jesus is coming back someday? Because he said he was, and I'm going to listen to Jesus. I'm going to listen to everything he said. He rose from the dead, so he, you know, I listened to him. Why do I believe that there is a heaven and there is a hell? Because this is what Jesus taught. And why do I believe that Jesus is the only way to God? Because that's what he said. That's what he said. Romans 10 verse 9 says this, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So what will you do with Jesus today? What are you going to do with Jesus today? Was he a liar or is it all true? And if it's true, then it leads us to respond with more than just half-hearted, oh, Jesus was just a nice teacher. It leads us to respond by saying, you are God. You are the Son of God, the only way to heaven. It compels us to give our lives for this Son of God who gave his life for us. It compels us to respond with devotion, saying it's not just following the teachings of a man. It's not just finding my version of truth. It is the Son of God who died for you and rose again. We are going to close this morning's service by taking communion together. We're going to take communion together in just a minute. There's two communion stations up here, and I'll give a little more instruction in just a minute. And if you are, maybe you are a first-time visitor today, and now you're like, oh, now we've got to take communion. If, you're, if you don't want to take communion with us, that's totally fine. But I want to encourage you, everyone's welcome to take communion. If you have a faith in Jesus Christ, if you have made that declaration like Romans 10 verse 9 says that Jesus is Lord and that you believe God raised him from the dead, then you're a Jesus follower. So I would love for you to take communion with us. Um, but here's what I want to highlight. As we take this time, and it's going to be grape juice and a little cracker, and that's how we do communion here. Um, this represents what we're talking about today, that Jesus died for us. His body was broken for us, for that sin that we could never repay. That's why he came. So I want us to remember that, to think about that. This is a 
I know it can become ritualistic at times, and sometimes we do communion. It's just something else we do in church. It doesn't really hit home. But today I want it to hit home. This is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we are celebrating. What makes the difference for us, that makes everything turn in our lives because we believe that Jesus died for us and he rose again as victorious Lord and Savior and King. But here's what I want to close with. We've been talking about Jesus saying he's the only way and how it's exclusive to Christianity. And a lot of people would say, well, all the other religions have valid things too. But there's one thing that is different between Christianity and every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world. Christianity is unique in one way. And that is this. Every other religion is all about what we have to do to get God happy with us. Whatever God they worship. It's all about doing something to get God happy with you and earn salvation or earn heaven or nirvana or a space on a, a place on the Tom Cruise spaceship to Scientology, whatever it is. It's all about doing something to get something. Christianity is unique in this. It is not about us doing anything. It is about what has been done. It is about what has been done. Some of you need to hear this today. This message might be, you might have forgotten all, everything else I've said, but you need to hear this. Maybe you've been going at Christianity all wrong. Maybe you've been going at it all wrong in this. You're trying to make God happy with you. Maybe you're trying to do all sorts of things to earn the approval of God, to make Him happy with you, to earn salvation, to get your life figured out so that God will accept you or be pleased with you. Maybe you're trying to be a good person, a good enough person for God to accept you. The words in this gospel are supposed to be freeing and life-giving. But maybe for somebody here today, it's a burden because you're constantly finding yourself messing up, tripping over something in your life, constantly saying, I keep messing up here. I keep failing. I want to succeed and earn God's love. And every time you're like, I can't do it. I keep falling. I keep falling. I keep falling. And it never works. This is why Christianity is different than every religion, because it is not about doing that. It is not about doing that. It is what has been done. The Bible is not meant to crush and make you feel defeated. When you read the Bible the way it's supposed to be read, the Bible says this. The message of the gospel is this. You failed at everything? Of course you failed at things. Everybody fails at things. Everybody fails and falls short. Nobody gets it right. But what you need is somebody to succeed for you, and that's what Jesus Christ has done. That's what we celebrate with communion today. You need someone to succeed for you. You've been trying to get your life in order for how many years, and you keep failing. Well, that's the whole point. Of course you're failing. Everybody fails. But we need Jesus to succeed for us, and he did, and he gave his life for you so that now when God looks at you, he doesn't see all the mess-ups, all the mistakes. He sees Jesus' blood and righteousness. He sees righteous. He sees forgiven. That's all he sees. That's the good news today. If you have been going at Christianity trying to earn something, you're doing it wrong. Jesus has succeeded for you. 
Jesus has made a way to God. And all you have to do is just confess with your mouth and in your heart have faith that Jesus is Lord, that he is the way to salvation. It is an exclusive claim, but it is the claim that gives us life and hope. It's already been done in Jesus Christ.